we're going to go to Wellington now, where Colin Peacock is standing by for Midweek Media Watch, or you may even be sitting down. Hi, Colin. I'm sitting down. I'm ready. I'm like a coiled <laughs> spring. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, let's start with the serious stuff first. Um, you've been looking at coverage of Ukraine in our broadcast news and where it comes from. Yes, there is just so much to choose from now, thanks to the internet and all the TV channels and so on. Um, as we know, across social media, so much stuff, propaganda, opinions, you know, and sort of context-free bits uh, that have been morselized and shared widely. And uh, there was a, an interesting story that uh, caused a few people to uh, raise their eyebrows, which was that the White House saying they were going to brief TikTok influencers on Ukraine, which I think they did last Thursday. And in fact, I, I checked in on the channel. One of them is a guy called Khalil Green, who's got more than half a million followers. He was saying, yeah, basically what took them so long? You know, I've got all these people, like all my friends, we all source our news and search things up on TikTok. So why did it take so long for them to brief us? So kind of a fascinating experience there. But then if you... Well, can, can I interrupt you? What kind of briefings would they be from the White House? Well, there were quite senior officials, such as uh, Jen Psaki, I think the one of the, the chief, um, I'm not sure of her job title, but she's the one you see delivering those, um, uh, dealing with the press at the podium for President Biden. And a couple of other very senior um, foreign service diplomats were there. And this guy, Khalil Green, gave a full rundown to his followers on what he was told, because uh, I think there was, some of it was nuts and bolts, like they didn't want TikTokers to start panicking people about the possibility of nuclear war. Uh, he was, this guy, Khalil Green, was quite suspicious, saying they were trying to tell me about all the great things America was doing. You know, when I tried to engage them about other bad faith things they might have done around the world, they're saying, uh, look, mate, no, no, we, we really need to keep the focus on Ukraine here because they're conscious of the fact that Russia is doing a lot of disinformation. A lot of it was going out being heavily amplified on social platforms, some of which now have, have pulled that back and uh, interrupted the algorithm so it can't quite be as... Um, well, as sort of tsunami-like in its nature, because early on, uh, some of the the statistics were quite incredible. Searches absolutely elevating clear Russian propaganda in a way that made it made it clear it was a campaign. So that's why they're doing it. I see, but we're we're getting our news here. Uh, mainstream media is is feeding us. Yeah, and to me, it feels like, uh, you know, that it's quite familiar with conflicts in the past. You know, our, our mainstream, like our, say, our TV channels, if you're a six o'clock news watcher, they've had the same sort of contracts and ties with the same overseas, like US and UK based organisations like BBC, CNN, ITV, the uh, the British news provider. Um now, that, that can be a bit of a problem because, you know, in conflicts like formerly in Iraq or Afghanistan, those countries are participants. Their forces are there. And I think it's a bit harder for them to report kind of on the outside. And you notice the difference if you watch, say, the coverage of a conflict on something like Al Jazeera, which has a better sense of the global south and Middle East and so on. But in this case, for this conflict, I think it's probably a strength because, you know, they're very experienced. They have bureaus in Moscow that can really interpret things um, and I think in this instance, although, you know, US and UK are on Ukraine's side, clearly, uh, I think it does help that, you know, we're seeing that traditional source of news giving us, you know, fairly reliable accounts of what's happening. How much depends on the individual correspondents who are in the field? Well, that, yeah, this is something that really startles me because um, if I go back 25 years, I, I was working kind of entry-level news producers, news gathering jobs at the BBC in London at their HQ. 
this, the likes of, um, say, Fugal Keen was on TVNZ's One News Tonight uh, reporting on refugees. Orla Guerin, these are really senior reporters now. Jeremy Bowen and Paul Adams, Lise Doucette, you know, I've, I've heard all three of them on Morning Report in the last couple of days. And they were all covering the war in Bosnia and former Yugoslavia 25 years ago when I was doing those jobs. So it's kind of incredible. I mean, collectively, I almost, it sounds a bit, teary-eyed, but I think of them as a kind of a collective kind of David Attenborough kind of resource for the world. They're really, really witnesses to all this conflict. But while they're the kind of roving ones that will go from conflict to conflict because they're very good at what they do, um, there are the likes of, you know, Moscow Bureau guy Steve Rosenberg for the BBC, been there for absolute years, and a younger colleague of his, Sarah Rainsford, who was kicked out of Russia earlier this year um, because of her reporting. Um, and she's now back in Kiev reporting from that side. So, you know, having them, um, it, it, it really they really know how the Moscow government operates. And uh, that is just a, a really valuable resource. And what about our Kiwi reporters, Colin? We've got our European correspondents there. Yeah, yeah. First of all, there's this fascinating guy, Thomas Much, a Kiwi photojournalist who was reporting from a phone with a selfie stick from the subway stations that were being used as bunkers and so on. Haven't seen so much from him lately. But then after that... TVNZ and NewsHub's Europe correspondents kind of got to the region and have been reporting firsthand. Daniel Faitawa for TVNZ, Lisette Raymer for NewsHub. And look, I think they've done really compelling reporting. Um, there is an argument to say, you know, the likes of the the BBC experienced veterans that we know, there's those reports they could run as well. Some of what they do duplicates it, but uh, it really does help, I think, for local viewers to have a, a local face. And also the fact that our news organisations, our TV broadcasters, are prepared to pay the money because it wouldn't be cheap to do it. That's good because, you know, if there is a conflict closer to home, means, you know, that international outlets might not cover. They've got the skills and the willingness to do it, so that's all good. But um, the thing is, it's not a competition. And I was a bit startled by um, a comment by Kate Hawksby. This is on News Talk ZB, who was kind of comparing what she'd seen in the two networks. And, uh, yeah, she said this on the air. I noticed TVNZ couldn't quite get their guy out of London and into Europe as quickly. They kept crossing to him live with the update uh, on Ukraine and he was just standing in London, which I would have thought if you're the Europe correspondent and there's that much action happening this close to Europe, you actually get there. Um, So I'm not sure why they were so slow out of the blocks, but the difference between an average reporter and a great one is on stark display, isn't it? The storytelling ability and humanity of Lisette Raymer. I mean, she's right in there capturing it all so beautifully, not standing on the sidelines somewhere safe reading news-wise. Mm, she did make it a competition. Well, I think so. Yeah, I think that's not fair comment at all. I mean, some people heard that, reacted really badly to it because they, they thought she was saying Daniel Faitawa is average and Lisette Raymer's doing the business. Um, but I don't think she was saying that at all. I think she was just saying that when you're in that situation, it really shines through if you've got the goods. I, I don't think that was a direct comment about him. She was saying that he wasn't there. Yeah, which is hardly his fault. He, he, in fact, I think, this was on March the 7th, and I think at that time he was actually there by then and had started to do reports which um, you know, were, were uh, fairly similar, in fact, to Lisette Raymer's and, and, and pretty good. Um, so I think that's odd. He's also, Daniel, he is the president of the Foreign Press Association in London. But that thing she said about you know being on the sidelines in London and reading the newswires, that's not right because... It's not the front line, obviously, um, but it's not the sidelines. I mean, London is a diplomatic capital. He's based in Westminster, tapping into the diplomatic and political responses, which are 
an important part of the story, and TBNZ had Anna Burns Francis in New York doing that too. So, and it, but also, I just think it's a bit of a lack of self awareness from Kate Hawksby because her whole show, that whole ZB thing, is based on sitting not even on the sidelines but in the studio, just dispensing opinions every day. And if you think of old you know, Paul Holmes, the, he. Uh, got around the place, you know, talked to people. He seemed to relish that doing his TV job. But the ZB folks don't do that. They're completely studio-based. So I thought that was a bit on the nose. And actually, if she wanted proof, Daniel Fitawa was capable of being out there talking to actual folks on the ground. Um, he did a live cross last Saturday where he was pretty memorably um, photobombed, if you can call it that, for a television thing. This is at Lviv railway station uh, where he was uh, yeah, interrupted in his live cross. And I think he handled it really beautifully. This is how early it is in the morning, and it is freezing, below freezing temperatures. Hello, how are you? Hello. Good to see you. And this is uh, Lena. Lena, nice to meet you, Lena. Lena is one of the many that are displaced here. Uh, this is a place where they all come. But of course, like Lena, it is the unknown. It is the unknown. And look, they still have a smile on their face. It is the unknown. Unknown uh, leap of where they're going to, unknown too, of when and if they'll ever get home. She didn't put him off? <laughs> no, no, but she tried. She did the full bunny ears behind the back. I think she was really enjoying herself. And the way people, it's better when you could see it because she was quite an unusual looking person, big toothy uh, grin, uh, all swaddled up in woolly jackets and stuff. And I think the way people were responding to it around the places, outside the railway station, a lot of people, uh, you know, trying to get on trains and so on, trying to stay warm. And I think uh, the way people were glancing at her, I think she might have been making a bit of a pain in the neck of herself around the place. So Daniel handled that very well. It wasn't the only notable uh, attempt at disrupting live television. Uh, th- that Russian TV editor ambushing her own live broadcast. Yes, that was remarkable. And this was, um, for context, was I guess a lot of people would have seen the pictures of it now. Live television, a main news channel apparently, so uh, very widely watched within Russia. Uh, the program is called Vremya, and her name was Maria Ovyanikova. She held up a sign saying, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda, they're lying to you. And I think earlier today she appeared in court for that, and because there's so much of a spotlight on her, she got a $400 New Zealand fine. Um, but the, there was, there is actually, because of the new laws they've passed to keep a lid on dissent, there is actually a potential jail sentence for this. Apparently, according to some reports, the possibility of a kind of further criminal case so um, let's hope that the spotlight really is on her and people don't lose track of her because I'm sure the authorities will want to punish her for for what she did Um, but I've seen uh, foreign journalists posting stuff saying that is astonishing what she did a lot of people at home who've been fed a lot of propaganda would have been quite startled to see that and it definitely would have made an impact so uh, yeah let's hope she gets looked after. And so far this week it's only Wednesday but uh, two very experienced foreign TV reporters have tragically been killed and more local staff. And it really does um, go to show the indiscriminate nature of this Russian assault, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exactly it, because the um, the guy who was killed from, from Fox News, he was 55-year-old, also an Irish citizen, so Ireland is, is very annoyed about that. Uh, but yeah, he was an absolute veteran of, of covering conflict zones, and people are saying, well, you know, if someone like him is in danger, the, you know, it could be absolutely anyone. Also, some discomfort and annoyance that Fox News made a big deal about him, but not of the 24-year-old woman, the producer, the local with the crew, who would have been absolutely key, because those fixers, those local producers who who um, who know the territory are absolutely key people, often overlooked and often at, 
at greatest risk. So, um, yeah, definitely. But uh, I'm sure... Uh, there was also the American documentary maker Brett Renault. He was killed a couple of days back. Um, they won't be the last. You know, th- there will definitely be more. We're well, moving on to uh, this merger between RNZ and TVNZ. And last weekend, you had the whole of Media Watch. The whole show was about that. Uh, <laughs> this new public entity announced on Thursday. So, what have the media had to say about it? Well, yeah, surprisingly little. Um, I mean, it is the biggest shakeup potentially for thirty years now, broadcast system. So, I thought it was worth, you know, going the whole hog on it and seeing what people had to say. But I suppose, like a lot of people, I zeroed in on. You know, the nuts and bolts of this. What's it going to mean? What will we get from TVNZ and RNZ in the future as they transition? And then what, what will the new thing be? Because it was so unclear and, and remains so. But there are some bigger picture issues I thought might come out. Paul Thompson, the RNZ chief executive, right at the start of his interview with me, you know, mentioned like one of the things in the background here is, you know, the the, the kind of mega trend of the so-called fangs, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. They're so dominant in the marketplace of media and advertising and so on, that that affects the whole scene here, and that's relevant to this. Also, um, as he said, you know, as we've been speaking about misinformation, polarisation, these are big issues where you need a coherent and public-spirited media organisation as part of the mix at the very least. Those elements of it weren't widely talked about. Another commentator, um, Gavin Ellis, uh, former Herald editor, former Nine to Noon uh, media commentator with Catherine Ryan. Uh, he criticised the or, the structure, this autonomous crown entity they've picked. He doesn't think it will necessarily be freestanding and free of influence, which he says it needs to be. There's going to be an establishment board where a minister and cabinet colleagues and, and the Ministry for Cultural and Heritage could have a high level of influence. There's also a sort of no surprises element uh, where they'll be kept abreast of what they're doing. He doesn't think that's true independence. That's not an issue that's been widely explored. And on the scoop.co.nz website, uh, Tom Fruin, the the founder of the Media Watch program 20 years ago, um, he said, this is really not reforming broadcasting at all if you consider that it's a 30-year-old model based around having New Zealand on air uh, as a dispenser of contestable funding because government back then for political reasons didn't want broadcasters to be too powerful or controlling their own budgets and this persists and hasn't really been examined and then there's another issue which he's mentioned a very few other people have RNZ's charter was under review I guess it becomes a moot point if we get a new public media entity but a parliamentary committee had an inquiry into that which has not yet reported back and uh, you know what's happened to that that's something that uh, we shouldn't completely lose sight of. What about TVNZ have they been reflecting on their future at all? Uh, well, disappointingly not. There was a tiny little clip of their own brand new chief executive in their own news the night it was announced. But I did perk up when I saw the Q&A show, the publicly funded politics show on Sunday, hosted by Jack Tame. They said they'd have an interview with Tracy Martin, who is the former New Zealand First MP who led the group that scrutinised the business case for this new media entity and is one of, I guess, very few people that have actually had eyes on this thing that's all been done behind closed doors. And this is how Jack Tame introduced it. Basically, everything we recommended that we believe will provide the future that public media needs has been acknowledged and accepted by the Cabinet. Um, So we're we're just thrilled with um, the outcome today, really. That was Tracy Martin speaking earlier this week. She headed up the group giving recommendations to the government on a new public media entity. Recently I visited her and her dogs at home in Wairarapa for a wide-ranging conversation. Yeah, the the problem with that though, Karen, it it didn't range widely enough to include any questions about 
the media plan, even though that, <laughs> that interview ran for a full 25 minutes. It's up there on the website. So what did they talk about? Well, I mean, it was wide-ranging. I'll give Jack Tame that. Uh, they talked about COVID planning, how the government had done um, education issues because she was involved in that, and Oranga Tamariki as well. Um, Winston Peters, of course, being close to him. They talked about cycle lanes, um, cancel culture, all sorts of stuff. They even talked towards the end for quite a time about how she's writing romance novels and a screenplay that she's written. And at some point she said, now, part of the broadcasting work I've done informs the screenplay I'm writing. I don't want to know about your screenplay or your romance. I want to know about this public media. I know I'm, you know, I've got a very singular interest in this, but, I mean, I've no idea why. They introduced it by saying she was the woman who who had this go-between role for this public media entity and never, never asked anything about it when it's, you know, the single most important thing at the moment for... TVNZ itself, so not good. Not good, okay. <laughs> Let's move on to polls, and I, I assume the dramatic One News poll result, and I assume you are to uh, use the common vernacular, triggered by the reporting <laughs> of these polls. But, but National in the lead, it was a big story. Oh yeah, look, I have to give it that. I, so yes, I I have always had gripes about the way that the TV companies that pay for these polls, um, TVNZ and News Hub, beat up the results terribly when often they're not all that interesting. This one was, and I have to give them that, but um, but I, I still have gripes, Karen. <laughs> what are they? Well, just, and this is where I am repeating myself from previous ones, they're so fixated on this thing of if there was an election tomorrow. Um, and there isn't. There just isn't. I mean, they keep talking about us as voters, but we are citizens. You know, we're not waiting like coiled springs for an election. I think that's them. You know, the, the political reporters are the ones who can't wait and obsess about the numbers and, and all of that. And the thing that what frustrates me is these polls, like the One News one, they do actually ask people about issues. Like they asked about people's economic confidence. And there was a separate poll question about the support for vaccine mandates which, you know, given what happened down at Parliament, is a big issue. But they keep just pulling out these <laughs> these responses about which party you support and who's your preferred Prime Minister. And when an election is far away, I just, I just don't think it helps. No, there's a lot of political water to go under the bridge before the actual election, which is in 2023. Yeah. But uh, more clogging of the radio airwaves. Radio Today FM goes on air Monday? Yeah, this is a new one. Today FM, this is from the MediaWorks company. There's also a couple of TV channels as well uh, on the same day that are launching from MediaWorks, so huge week for them. But I, I did have to have a laugh because yesterday MediaWorks tried to put out a press statement to pump up the excitement about Tova O'Brien, who's their big hire, hosting The Breakfast Show, which will go head-to-head with a certain broadcaster on News Talk ZB, who likes to boast about his audience. And they quoted her saying in the press release, I'm so excited, the day has finally come. I can't wait to join the team to get stuck in on air next week. So, you know, the day will actually come next week, or next Monday. Is that fact or opinion? They have been kept waiting for the day, though. She, she was banned from starting by her old employer at News Hub. Yeah, that's right. And this is really sad for her. She had a restraint of trade clause in her contract with the former employees who enforced it. She challenged it and didn't win. Um, so funnily enough, that was the topic of the first podcast that Today FM has put out, which is called The Core. Today, we cut to the core of restraints of trade. A restraint of trade is just an anachronism. It's just the capitalist class seeking to impose its will on the workers, and it's a load of bullshit. 
Just a coincidence? No, no, they owned up to it. They said, look, the reason we're doing this is that, you know, Tova's experience had delayed our whole launch and we're bitter about it. This is Wilhelmina Shrimp, the new host of the podcast. Um, but in a remarkable piece of audio, Tova O'Brien actually phones, it's the moment that she phoned her lawyer to find out that she had, in fact, effectively lost her employment case challenging the restraint of trade. I'm nervous. You don't sound good. Your voice, no. I can tell your tone. Oh, no. So basically, they've found that uh, the restraint has been modified to be uh, expiring on the 14th of March. Okay. So they haven't completely won, but it's not great. Oh, I'm gutted. Yeah, so I guess restraint of trade was the topic, but a bit of uh, unrestrained language there from Tova O'Brien. And anything else on the website worth looking at? <laughs> yeah, they've got a website live before going live on the radio on Monday. Uh, a whole bunch of fairly tepid opinion pieces, but there is an interesting one from Dallas Gurney, the, the boss of the station, uh, who's called Today FM's Pledge to New Zealanders, and he said, we're sick of being angry, the sun comes up each day, we're not going to panic you every uh, just to get you to listen a bit longer or to click another headline. We're not going to be sensational just because we know you're going to call up and share about it uh, and, and talk about it and share it on social media. These are old tricks, he says. You worked them out long ago. They're not clever, and you see them for what they are. So he's kind of saying we're going to have um, a, a bit of a new attitude, and they're also, um, I think, billboards up around Auckland, I think, that are trying to make it clear that they're differentiating themselves from their competition in, in talk radio. What have they? What's the latest slogan? Well, the one I've seen a photograph of, uh, just the big, big slogan is "Today FM, a more balanced mic," um, and it's spelled <laughs> M-I-C dot as in short for microphone. But I don't think that's the mic they want you to be thinking about. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you very much, Colin. We'll ch- chat with you in a couple of weeks' time. Sure, look forward to it. Thanks so much.